Let's pray together. Father, we come to you tonight, and we're just uh, so grateful you give us this opportunity to open your word and to gain biblical understanding, biblical knowledge, to know how that we can trust you more and more and put our faith in you, not just only for salvation, but for each and every day and all that we go through. Holy Spirit, we pray tonight that you would be our teacher and that everything uh, that I share would be there's things that are not of you, Lord, we pray that, um, that they wouldn't be heard tonight. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here. If you'll be seated and take your Bibles tonight, we're in First uh, Peter. That's the book of the Bible we're studying on Wednesday nights together in Pastor's Corner Live. And it's under the uh, topic or under the title of Bitter or Better You Decide. And so the thrust of this study is to teach us how to conduct ourselves when we find ourselves in situations or we find ourselves in a culture where people are being antagonistic toward our Christian belief and toward our Christian faith. And so what I believe we've been able to extract, excuse me, from this study so far is that what Peter is trying to help us understand is oftentimes the way we live, the way we act, the way we react, oftentimes that means that we're the only Bible that people read. In other words, there are people that you go to work with. There are people that are your friends or people that you interact with that they have no desire to read the Bible because they're not saved. They don't have the Holy Spirit inside of them, but they've heard you tell them about this person called Jesus, or even maybe you've kind of visited with them about their need for this Jesus. And they're not going to go open the Bible and read it, but they're going to watch your life. They're going to watch the way you act. They're going to watch the way that you react. And, and, and I'll give you a little nugget. You know, that person at work that is just always rubbing you the wrong way. You know, that person, you say, why are they always messing with me? You know what I found in my past? That was generally the person that was seeking the most to try to find out something about this Jesus. And what they're doing is they're testing you to see, is this Jesus that you say changes your life so much? I know you say he's really important to you when things are going good, but but what about when it's not so good? What about when I rub you the wrong way? And really what they're doing is they're just testing you to see whether you're going to choose to live better or you're going to choose to live bitter. So in this letter that we've been studying, Peter's encouraging us to maintain an exemplary testimony to be better and not bitter in different areas of our life. And there's three social settings that he talks to us about. We've discussed two of them so far. And the first one that he discusses is in the area of civil authority. Look with me in chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the king. In other words, live better and not bitter when it comes to whatever situation you find yourself when we're talking about civil authority. The second social order that he talks to us about to make sure that we live better and not bitter is in our workplace. He continues there in verse 18. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. And what we talked about is this idea of suffering and this idea of persecution. That's just part of the salvation package. At the moment of our salvation, we are no longer of this world. We're of heaven and our, our pledge of allegiance, though we are Americans, our ultimate pledge of allegiance is the things of God and the things that are set above. And so just like they were willing to persecute and they were willing to do things in, against Christ and cause him to suffer, then as his followers, as his disciples, as little Jesuses, as what we are as Christians, then we should expect for the exact same Thing to happen. And if you aren't sure how you should act when you're suffering, if you're not really sure how in the world could you ever deal with this persecution like Peter is talking about, Peter says, Well, let me give you a really good example. And then in the letter in verse 21, he says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. In other words, we should. DWJD, right? That's what we talked about last week. Did everybody see your, your, uh, your bracelets that were back there in the back that Miss Stacy and them got for us? It says DWJD and it has that passage. Before you leave out of here tonight, grab one of those and put those on the wrist. And that way tomorrow when people are asking you, what is that? I've heard of WWJD, but what's this DWJD? And if you're not really sure, you can't remember from the message, you can turn it over and read that passage of scripture to them, okay? She's covered it all. If you go to the inside, it has our website. So if you don't know what to say, just say, well, go listen to Pastor's Corner Live from last Wednesday night. She's covered it all for us. But that's what Peter's getting at here. He's saying, man, if you want to live better, not bitter, and you're not sure how to do it, you've been given an example. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who... Committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, we were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. And now tonight we come to chapter three. Tonight we come to this third social order that we need to make a decision that we're going to live better and not bitter ahead of time. We need to make that determination that no matter what we face in this situation, no matter what we face in this thing that Peter is about to talk about, that we're going to choose to live better and not bitter. And now he goes into this third social order, and that is in the area of marriage. I think you'd agree with me tonight that the state of marriage in our country is uh, not in a good place. There's a lot of attacks that have been made on marriage, and there's a reason for that, because when the marriage breaks down, the family breaks down, it causes difficulties in the home, it causes difficulty for the children. It's just an ongoing domino effect. And so as a result of that, there's been this great attack. And when we say that, oftentimes we'd love to be able to say, but that's not the way it is inside the church. It's just outside the church that marriages are struggling, but that's just not the case. We know that it's inside the church as well. As a pastor, you know, I've performed, you know, hundreds of funerals, but I have also performed dozens and dozens of marriages. And it's my conviction that before I conduct a ceremony that I sit down with those that are 
that are getting married, and we spend a copious amount of time, and we talk about what does it mean to be saved? Are you sure you're a Christian? Do you understand the responsibilities? And we go through the biblical expectation of what this means for a Christian man and a Christian woman to enter into a relationship, a covenant relationship, the way that Christ loves us. Because Ephesians chapter 5 says that our marriage relationship, the mystery is that it's a picture of Christ's love for us and how he never breaks that covenant relationship. He never divorces us. He never does away with us. And do you understand that? And even in light of all of that teaching and all those things, I've still had these Christian marriages that instead of choosing to be better and not bitter in difficult times, they've chosen to take the bitter route. And as a result of that, it's ended up in divorce. And as I've thought back over this and I've kind of processed some of these things, what I begin to realize is that a lot of people can't distinguish the difference between a wedding and a marriage. They can't understand the difference between a wedding. A wedding takes a year or so to plan, maybe two or maybe less than that. But it's this planning, and then in just a few minutes, it's over when the ceremony takes place. But a marriage, on the other hand, is something that takes a lifetime. In other words, fill in these blanks for me. A wedding is a ceremony, and a marriage is a lifelong journey. A wedding is a ceremony, and a marriage is a lifelong journey. Journey, And so it's my prayer as we begin this study tonight of First Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7, that we'll embrace this idea. All of us, wherever we find ourselves tonight when it comes to marriage, is that marriage is a lifelong journey. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 14, this is what the Bible says. It says, when Jesus came into Peter's house or his home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. From this, we understand that Peter was a married man. So as we enter into this teaching tonight in First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt because of what the Bible tells us that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, that what we're about to study has been given to us by God. But what we also know is that Peter, being a married man, he's also writing to us from his heart. He's also writing to us from a place of experience. And so I'm not sure if we're going to get through all seven verses tonight. I don't think we probably will, but we'll get through as many of them as we can. Elaine and I leave tomorrow for Belize, and we'll be back before next Wednesday night. And wherever we end tonight, we'll pick right back up, and we'll keep going from there. So let me give you a little bit of background so we know where we are. I'm always amused. Uh, when, I, when I read about what others say about Paul and Peter, even Jesus, and their teaching uh, when it came to women because they don't really understand the truth behind these things that are being written. When you, when you understand the Greco-Roman culture in the first century when Peter and Paul wrote and when Jesus lived his life, what would you would come to understand is that in the first century, women received little or no respect. That was the culture of the day. There were even Roman laws that encouraged or ensured that that's the way that it was. For instance, there's one law, it's the, it's the law of the father's home. Is the passage of scripture, or excuse me, is the law that uh, we find during that period of time, and that literally means the father's power. So, in other words, all children were under the ultimate power of the head of the home, the ultimate power of the father. You know, sometimes we hear somebody say something to a, to a child or to uh, someone that uh, one of their kiddos that isn't acting right, isn't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They say, hey, kiddo, listen to me. I brought you into this world and I can take it. Has anybody ever heard that? That's basically what this law was in Rome. Ask any questions whatsoever. Nobody was going to do anything whatsoever if the dad took 
any level of degree of punishment or whatever he wanted to do because the law of the land said it was the dad's word and the final word when it came to the house. And so a daughter was married off. When a daughter was given to a man, the husbands did not have patre potestis. That wasn't the Roman law. The Roman law that they had was called manus. And the word manus or the law was the autocratic power of the husband over the wife. So this, this law, this manus, this autocratic power of the husband now was over the wife. So the daughter had been underneath the headship totally of the dad. And then at her marriage, she now came underneath the total control and power of her husband. So the very fact, and here's what we have to understand when I, I shared that with you for, is the very fact that Paul and Peter would even address women in a positive fashion in their writing. I want you to think about it. They're writing in the first century where women had no respect. They, 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 they were under the total control of either their father or their husband. And that was it. What they said was the law. The fact that Peter and Paul would write to the fact, talking about what women were to do and not to do and how they functioned in the church and these kind of things. The fact that Jesus would stop in the middle of the day and talk to the Samaritan woman at the well. What they were saying is that we don't see gender We see that in Christ, that is an equality thing that's happening. They were on the cutting edge of women's right, where they're always talked about being very chauvinistic in the kind of teaching. And all I can do when I hear that is just kind of laugh and go, that person really is ignorant of Scripture, if that's what they want to say, because they don't understand the culture of the day and what an amazing thing it was that Peter and Paul and Jesus did. And so rather than being male chauvinists, as many people accuse them to be, they were actually on the cutting edge of women's equality in society. Now, I shared these laws with you that because of this law, this Roman law, Petre Potestas, and how it carried into the marriage had great impact when it came to religious practices, especially during first century Christianity. For instance, you've got this wife that she's under the total autocratic authority of her husband, and she's exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's not his belief system. And she gives her life, she gives her heart to Jesus Christ. If she went back into that home and she bucked against his religious beliefs, then he had total right to do to her whatever he felt was necessary. That's the culture that we're talking about, that these passages of scriptures are being written in. Now, here's what we know today, because we have the privilege to have the completed canon of scripture, and we have everything that we possibly need. We should be teaching our children that it's not wise for a Christian young man or young woman to date a non-believer, because what do we do? We marry the people that we date, right? And we know in scripture, it says that a believing person is not to be married to an unbelieving person. Second Corinthians chapter six and verse 14 says, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. Now, it'd be real easy for me to kind of leave that there and, and go on. But we have to keep all this in context to understand what Peter's about to teach us. Because we understand the period of time in which this was written, what these Roman laws were, no doubt the pressure that it would have put on a wife to go back into an unbelieving home as a Christian, we have to understand that there were those ladies that came into a relationship with Jesus Christ whose husbands were not saved during this period of history. 
That's why Peter writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 13, he says, A woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce him. She must not send him away. He, he's dealing with the context. He's dealing with what's going on in that period of time. So if what we do, if, if we take this passage of Scripture that we're fixing to talk about in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and we say... Well, the only people that this passage of Scripture is talking to would be a wife that gets saved and goes back into the home of an unsaved person, an unsaved husband. That's what this passage is talking about. I think we're limiting the scope or the context of what's going on in first century Rome. To correctly understand passages of Scripture, we have to stay hermeneutically in the text, but we also have to keep it in the context in which it was written. And so when I put this in the context of the history of this period of time, who is the emperor in Rome during this time? Emperor Nero. And what's going on around 64 A.D.? The great fire of Rome has happened, and so now he's blaming the Christians, and now we see the ramping up of this persecution. And what we probably also see is we see some men that also got saved at the same time that their, husband, uh, that their wives did, but now there's great persecution falling on all Christendom. And here they may not be willing to live out their faith the way that their wives would want them to because of the fear of persecution, because of the fear of pain and these kind of things. So Paul is, excuse me, Peter is addressing these things by writing this letter and saying, hey, let's make sure we understand how we're supposed to handle things when persecution and suffering and these things kind of happen. And so the attitude and actions that we're going to see in these verses and I believe it's because these verses have been incorrectly translated. And I'm going to show you some reasons for that here in a little bit. We always want to leave this as just talking to wives that find themselves in a home where the husband is not saved. And I do not believe that's the case. I believe these verses are just as applicable to the wife that finds herself in a home where the husband is unsaved as it is for the wife that finds herself in the home where her husband is saved. And so I want you to just hold on to that, and I'll share with you why I think that and why that's so important when we get to verse 1 and then eventually when we get to verse 7. So the reason I'm going through all of this and the reason I'm trying to get us on the same page is because if marriage truly is a lifelong journey, it's not just a ceremony, then there's got to be some responsibilities that women, wives, men, husbands, there's got to be some responsibilities that we have to understand to live by so that we're on this lifelong journey and we don't just kind of let the marriage go whenever things are not going good. Now, if you notice in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Peter starts with the wives. So I want all of the ladies, all of you that are in here live with me right now, those of you that are on Facebook live, I want you to dial in right here with me. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote six out of seven verses to the ladies and one verse to the man. So that means that if we discuss about this, I'm going to spend six, more t- six, six times more talking to women than I am to man. Do you understand? Six and one there. Now, when we get through with this, it doesn't matter what you say to me. I've decided I'm going to live better and not bitter. Okay, that's just what I'm going to do. 
All right. But this is this is the writing of the Holy Spirit. So we've just got to walk through these passages the way that they are. And the way Peter starts it and the way we're going to talk about it begins with the wife's responsibility. And so let's see if we can get through these six verses tonight. First Peter, chapter three and verse one, it says in the same way you wives be submissive. Now, remember, we've already talked about Peter has introduced three social areas that we want to make sure that we're demonstrating to the world what it means to live as a fully devoted follower of Christ. We're going to choose these three areas that no matter what happens, we are going to choose to live better and not bitter. The first was citizens. They need to submit to civil authorities. Second, servants need to submit to their masters. And now we come to this area of the marriage relationship. This word submit is a word that is oftentimes abused. It's oftentimes misused. And so we have to understand it to make sure we stay in the right context and application of what we're learning tonight. The Greek word for submit is the word hupoteso. And it literally means to place under in an orderly fashion. To place under in an orderly fashion. Fashion. Now, Spirosodietes was a, a, a Greek American known as one of the foremost authorities on the translating of the Greek language, the biblical Greek into the English. And this is his commentary uh, in 2000 on this word hupoteso. He says in society, all humans, all men and women in various positions of leadership or following and dependence are equal Yet their functions vary and their responsibilities are diverse. We are all equal before God and the laws of society. And yet we have varying functions and responsibilities. If we accept certain functions under a fellow human, we must subject ourselves to that individual to accomplish a common goal. So it is with a wife placing herself in the proper and divinely fitted position under her husband. The functions are equally important, although different, and they are different not because we want them to be, but because God made them so. And so this word submission or submit is not an ugly word. It's a very understandable word in every area that we function in. And it's very interesting that this word is used in the present passive form. In other words, when you use the present passive form verb in the Greek language, what it means is the recipient of the action is not demanding that the action take place. Listen to that again. The recipient of the action is not demanding that the action take place. Now listen to that and let's go back and read verse 1 again. In the same way, what's he talking about? In the same way that I just talked to you about... Civil authority submission. The same way I just talked to you about workplace submission. In the same way I want to talk to you about marriage submission. You wives, hupotasso, be submissive to your own husbands. Wives, you choose to place yourself under your husband's authority, not because he is demanding it, but because God designed it to be that way and you're submitting yourself ultimately to the authority of your savior. That's what Peter is saying in this passage of scripture. And so what the first responsibility that we find here is that a woman is to be submissive 
to her husband. Now, if you ladies want to get some of your unsaved girlfriends at work really riled up tomorrow, I mean, maybe probably a lot of Christians as well. Take what I'm doing tonight. Take that recording home and, and splice it up to where all that it says is it hears me saying a wife is to be submissive to her husband with none of the stuff that we've been talking about. Just play that really loud in your cubicle tomorrow. And they'll put me right up there with Peter and Paul and Jesus. I'll just be a male chauvinist right there. Okay. But that's not what Peter is talking about here. I remember last summer I was having problems with my weed eater. And so I come to find out it was a carburetor issue. And so what was not happening is that the gasoline was not flowing into the carburetor correctly so that the engine would not run. And I had two options. I could either say the carburetor is what I need to fix or I just need to pour gas all over the top of it. There was either something not functioning right, and I had to understand how the designer of that carburetor built it and get it to function right for it to run, or I could put my views on top of that, and I could just pour gasoline all over the top of that weeder, up and down the shaft, all over it, and I could just start cranking right and left. Now, hopefully, if I did that, that thing never fired, right? Because if that everything, that everything ever fired and took off or with the right spoke, there would be a mess on my hands right there. And I want you to understand that's why there's a lot of messes in marriages today in Christian homes. Because Peter is helping us understand right here that God is the designer of marriage. God is the creator of marriage. And as such, he knows how the marriage functions best. And we can pour gasoline wherever that we want. And we can try to circumvent the way that the designer created marriage to be. But sooner or later, that thing's going to spark. And if it's not flowing the way that God created it to be, that spark is going to cause damage. It's not going to cause it to function the way that it should. I love what John MacArthur says on this topic. He says, submission does not imply any moral, intellectual, or spiritual inferiority in the family, in the workplace, or society in general. But it is God's design for roles necessary to mankind's well-being. In no form, no, no way, no form, no fashion is Peter talking in any way about the inequality of the husband and the wife. We, we know that's just not, a, not the case, and especially in the spiritual realm, because in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes to us and says, For all of you know who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. But in light of that, and still in light of that, God has ordained women to have certain responsibilities when it comes to marriage. And here's the first responsibility. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Now listen to me very carefully. Peter is not commanding for you to be servile to all men in all contexts. He is writing in the context of your marriage union. He's saying a wife is to come underneath in an orderly fashion, the headship or the leadership of her husband so that the marriage can function the way that it's supposed to. And that is supposed to happen with your husband. 
Now, there is a, there's an understanding of roles and responsibilities when it comes to the church, and Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Timothy chapter 2, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about specifically the social order of the marriage. So responsibility number one, a wife is to be submissive to her husband. Then it comes to responsibility number two, and that is a wife is to be spiritually attractive. A wife is to be spiritually attractive. Again, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, here's where we're going to go for just a few moments, and I'm explaining to you why I believe that in this passage of Scripture that is not just limited to wives in the home of an unsaved husband, okay? Listen to what Peter says again there in verse 1. He says, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Notice that, that phrase right there, even if. I'll read it to you the way that I understand this verse to read. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if there's any of them that are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives if they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And here's why I believe that that verse reads that way. The Greek word for disobedient, apatheo, this is what it does not mean. Apatheo does not mean do not believe. I get the question sometime. Pastor, for many, many years, the Southern Baptist Convention used the NIV Bible. Why don't you read out of the NIV Bible? I've got 62 NIV Bibles at home on my shelf. And it's just hard to explain. I try to do my best. There are some nuances that certain translations have used that I do not believe are correct, correct translations. And this is one of them. Because this is the way the NIV translates the word apatheo. It says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word. That is, an, in my opinion of understanding that word, which does not mean do not believe, that is not a good translation of that word. That's why the New American Standard uses the word disobedient to the word. The King James Version uses obey not the word, and the ESV says do not obey the word. So what apatheo does mean, it does not mean do not believe. What it does mean is not to allow, allow oneself to be persuaded, to disbelieve, or to be disobedient. Okay, so now let's go back to that verse. So that even if any of them are disobedient, and let's put those three definitions, even if any of them will not allow themselves to be persuaded by what the word says, even if any of them disbelieve what the word says, even if any of them are disobedient to what the word says. In other words, ladies, if your husband is saved and living it, if your husband is not saved or if your husband is saved and not living it the way that you think he ought to be living it. 
In other words, this verse is for every Christian woman, wherever you find yourself tonight. If your husband is being disobedient to the word, whether that's salvation or sanctification, look what he says. They may be one, not guaranteed, but they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they, the husband, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. I listened to a sermon one time that Dr. Jerry Vines preached on this, and I thought his illustration that he used right here is perfect, so I'm going to read it to you. He said, here's a wife, and she's come to know the Lord, and her husband is unsaved, and she really wants him to be saved because she loves him so much. With all of her heart, she wants him to come to know Jesus as her Savior, and she gets a little overzealous about the thing. She gets worked up a little and she starts begging him to come to know the Lord and she starts preaching to him and starts nagging him and she's doing everything she knows to do to try to get him to be saved. She puts tracks under his pillows at night. She pastes John 316 on all of his beer cans and she turns my sermon CDs up so loud that he can't even watch the ball game. She kind of goes overboard and she hinders the situation just a little bit. The wife must come to understand that if you have good horse sense, you don't need to be a nag. That's not the way to win your husband. I think what Dr. Vines is getting there is exactly what Peter is trying to get across to us in this passage of Scripture is, ladies, whatever situation you find yourself tonight, whether that's in a home where your husband isn't saved or in a home where your husband is saved or in a home where your husband is saved but not living it the way that you feel like He needs to, they, that husband, may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. In other words, be spiritually attractive. Whatever you find yourself in tonight, don't be bitter, but be better. A wife lets her actions, that's what he's getting across here, a wife lets her actions speak louder than her words. That's how we are spiritually attractive. That's what Peter's getting across. And then there's a second area that he talks about that we need to make sure that we're spiritually attractive. And that is a wife should concentrate as much on her inward appearance as she does on her outward appearance. A wife should concentrate as much on her inward appearance as her outward appearance. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on Dresses. Now, we know a great deal about the grooming patterns or the, 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 the dress and those kind of things of the first century because of history and a lot of things that we read in, in the secular history books and those things during this period of time. And so there was such an issue that we find Paul addressing things like this in his letter to the Corinth. And we see uh, the Corinth, uh, to the Christians at Corinth. And then we also see Peter addressing some of these things right here. And one of the things they're dealing with is that women of that day, they wore very elaborate adornments. They kind of were very excessive in their outside or their outward appearance. Now, when we first kind of read that, we kind of wonder, but it makes a lot of sense. If we think about the Roman laws of that day, when a a daughter was given to a husband, she came under the law of Manus, a continuation just like the father could pretty much do anything that he wanted to the children, the husband now had that right with his wife because she had little or no respect in the society in which they lived. 
So because her husband had this ultimate right over her, it would make sense for wives to do everything that they could to be externally beautiful so that they would never stop being the apple of their husband's eye. Because he had the opportunity to put them away, to divorce them, to put them aside at any time he wanted because they had no voice into the situation. He had ultimate authority. So it makes sense that they would be going overboard in this area to do these kind of things. And so they did such extravagant things as during this period of time, some, some of them would import blonde wigs for, from Germany. They would go to the point of trying, you know, they, this is this culture that's kind of a darker culture. So they would want to wear these blonde wigs so that they would look more exotic for their husband. You remember the beehives of the day? Everybody remember those? Those were nothing compared to first century Greco-Roman culture. I mean, you take a beehive and put it on steroids. I mean, that's what these ladies had. And they would do things like they would adorn their heads with, with uh, strands of pearls and strands of gold and strands of silver. They wore the most um, amazing dresses as they possibly could. They were always searching for the finest garments and the finest fabrics so that they could have very elaborate clothing. In other words, they were very concerned with their outward appearance. So when we read here in verse three, that Peter's saying your adornment must not merely be external braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. He's, he's addressing the overemphasis. Listen to me. He's addressing the overemphasis of external braidings and external jewelry and all those kind of things. Now, there's been some misunderstanding through the years of what these actually mean. There, there are those uh, groups that would say, well, what Peter is saying shouldn't happen here is that, that a woman should not in any way wear, wear her hair braided or she shouldn't wear jewelry or she shouldn't wear anything like that. But you have to be very careful if that's the, if that's the, 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 the interpretation that you come from. Because when it says here that we, that, that, that if you're going to interpret as saying they shouldn't wear jewelry and they shouldn't braid their hair, what does the third statement in that verse mean? Putting on dresses. I'm just saying. The, the ones that would promote that this verse is saying don't braid your hair and don't wear jewelry are the ones that normally would only wear dresses, right? So if those two mean don't, then they're either saying don't wear dresses or don't wear clothes, Right? Now, that's, that wouldn't be immoral because who is it coming under? We're talking about to the husband, right? So I, I don't think that would be a good interpretation of that. We have others that take what's being taught here, and they say what Peter is saying is don't worry at all about your outside appearance. Just only worry about the inside appearance. They kind of walk around sometimes looking like a bed that hadn't been made up, you know? Have you ever been around those kind of, they're so spiritual, they just, they're, they're wrinkled and they're, they never try to, to do anything and, 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 and they kind of have this piety. Well, I'm so beautiful on the inside and that's kind of what they promote from there. That's definitely not what Peter's talking about. He, he's not talking about the, the going overboard and he's not talking about this. I think all of those would be to the extreme and not catch what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about the extravagant concentration He's talking about the lopsided attention of giving all of the time and attention to the outward appearance. That, that's really what he's got in his crosshairs here. That's why if you look in your Bibles in your passage of Scripture in this verse, you'll notice the word in the, in, the, in, the, in the New American Standard, and it's probably in others, there's a word that is before this idea of external, and it's italicized. Does anybody have that in your Bible? Look, You know why that's there? 
Because that word didn't exist or doesn't exist in the original language. The translators added that because they understood the culture of the day. They understood, and they're trying to make sure we understand exactly what Peter is talking about. And in the NASB, which I think is a good translation, he says, don't be merely concerned about the external. He doesn't say don't be worried about the external, but not just merely the external. Man, we know in our society today, a lot of people, we struggle with that. We, we struggle with this idea. Lane and I were watching America's Got Talent the other day, and they introduced David Hassel, Hasselhoff. Did I say that right, Hasselhoff? From here down, he looked like David Hasselhoff. Here up, I had no idea who that guy was. I mean, he was all about worrying about keeping himself looking young and tightening the skin and, and those kind of things. Why, why do people do that? Why do they put that much emphasis on that? Well, they're trying to stay viable. They're trying to stay valuable. They're trying to say, stay worth something to someone. But the bottom line is we're all going to get old. Amen. There is nothing that we can do about it. We're all going to get old. And, and, and so what Peter says here, he says, let it be the hidden person. Verse four, he says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. What Peter is saying here, he's saying, ladies, if you want to stay viable, If you want to stay valuable, if you want to stay worth something to your husband, then be just as worried about the inner beauty of who you are with Christ as you are with the outward beauty of what everybody else says that you need to look like. So Peter is encouraging wives to concentrate as much on their inner appearance as they do on their outward appearance, because the inward appearance is that thing that will never grow old. Now. What Peter does now is he makes sure that we have a good example. And I love that's the way Peter always does. He gives us his teaching and he says, now let me give you an example about what I'm talking about. He says, let me give you an example of a wife that's submissive to her husband. Let me give you an example of a wife that's spiritually attractive because she lets her actions speak louder than her words. And she worries as much about her inner self as she does her outer self. Look at verse 5. He says, for in this way, everything we've just talked about, in this way, in former times, The holy women also who hoped in God, they used to adorn themselves. They used to adorn themselves with the biblical understanding of submission. They used to adorn themselves by allowing their actions to speak louder than words. They used to adorn themselves by making sure that their inner being was as pretty as their external being. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husband, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by fear. In other words, a wife that chooses not because her husband demands it or not because her husband lords it over her by Roman law. But when a wife understands the creator of marriage, God himself said the best way that your, fun- your marriage is going to function the way I created it is for you to choose to voluntarily come underneath in an orderly fashion to the leadership of your husband. That's the way that your marriage is going to be able to function. And then when you work on that inner beauty and grow in yourself who you are in Christ, if you have that husband that's not saved, if you have that husband that's not living his life the way that you understand he ought to be living it, it's your actions that are going to speak louder than your words. It's your inner beauty that's going to endear you to him. And as a result of that, there's a 
greater possibility that he'll be that spiritual leader in your home that you want him to be than there is if you just put John 3.16 on his beer cans and stick all the tracks underneath his Bible, okay? So we've got five minutes left, and that is no way enough time for me to get to the guys. So that's where we're going to end tonight. And next Wednesday night, we're going to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. And I can talk with a lot more vibrato and, and uh, pointedness next Wednesday night than I was able to do tonight. But ladies, thank you very much for, you, uh, for your, your sweet attention and the way that we've been able to look at this passage of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again for this time tonight. We thank you for your word and thank you for giving us the opportunity to study it. Father, I pray, as we always do, that we'll not just be hearers of the word, but we'll be doers as we leave here tonight. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.